Good day, sounds and vision listeners and viewers and participants in these pod chats that we have with people that all of us know. We all know. And you all know that this is Andrew Lou Goldman saying hola and hello to another episode of Sounds and Vision. Getting near the end of what we're going to be giving you for the immediate now. Thank you, by the way, for all of the wonderful comments on our last two shows with Elliot Easton from The Cars and Dave Kaufman from Montreal. They really appreciate it. As is having as my guest today, the British photographer, Gerard Mankiewicz, famous mainly for his work with the Rolling Stones during the time that I was with them, so mainly like 64 to 67. Then we were both shown <laughs> the door as the doors of perception opened on the lives of the Rolling Stones and they became enlightened with the likes of Michael Cooper. That is meant to be an actual sentence. There's no off-grapes intended to be in there. Photography. Garrett is a photographer, obviously, famous for his shots with the Rolling Stones, Marion Faithful, Jimi Hendrix, and he continued working. He still works. So that's a good mark for him. I'm proud of him. So would his father be. Uh, his father... Wolf Mankiewicz was an East End London Jewish playwright in a time when the changing of the guard, so to speak, in theatre and in literature was about to take place. And in, in a lot of circles, Wolf Mankiewicz would have been persona non grata for being both speaking like that or whatever. And I'm not saying he did care, but from the East End and being Jewish but wrote some books that riveted England, A Kid for Two Farthings, The Bespoke Overcoat. David Kossoff appeared in at least one of those, the father of Paul Kossoff from Free. The worlds do collide, don't they? And, of course, the seminal Espresso Bongo, which changed my life so much when I saw the Shakespearean actor in a couple of good Michael Winner films to boot, Paul Schofield, played manager Johnny Jackson on the stage at the Savile Theatre, a theatre on London's Shaftesbury Avenue that would eventually be owned by Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager. Again, small worlds collide, great worlds collide, small but important worlds collide, necessary worlds. And Wolf Mankiewicz, his take on pop music with the Espresso Bongo with his collaborators, Monty Norman and others, changed my life, man. I was a little boy in the stalls. I was probably mm, 12 or 13 years old. My mother had taken me to the theatre because I had for once got a good school rapport. There's a scene in the show where church windows come down and... Johnny Jackson's client, Bongo Herbert, is bringing religion into the act. I'm looking at that going, I want this. I want all of it. I want all of a business in which you work with people in which 50% of what they make will be theirs. Let me tell that to Lucian Grange. He's up the ante, man. It's 93%, isn't it? But hey... You can't blame Lucian, or Sir Lucian, as Americans would probably prefer I called him. He is the head of Universal Records. There are people are scurrying around talking about how much money he made. He's entitled to it, man. It's as simple as that. Nobody ever said it was fair. You know, if you wanted to, to get into a business that was fair, put down your guitar and learn to be a plumber. Photography. Sorry, dear. 
Jared Mankiewicz, my favorite photographer, because now we're in, you know, we have brought Jonathan Becker to you. In a previous life, we brought Jerry Schatzberg to you. You know, we're living in a world where we are all photographers, right? You know, we got these things, these cell phones, and if you've got the Galaxy, you take better pictures than you folks with Apple, but that's just my humble opinion. My favorite photographer is actually Robert Kincaid. Who? Character that Clint Eastwood played in The Bridges of Madison County. Wonderful film, man, 1995, based on a, on a best-selling book, of course, directed and starred in with Clint Eastwood. The film was made for $22 million and it grossed $82 million. That's not bad. But the watch that Clint Eastwood had in it was just great. So was his attitude. So was the four days he spent with Meryl Streep playing uh, an Italian-American homemaker. So, you know, the fictional work of photography, because that's basically what it is. Garrett is here. He's going to explain to me what else it takes, apart from, one, being able to afford a camera, and two, from having the luck and the charm of standing in the right light. And so here, standing in the right light, is Mr. Garrett Mankiewicz. Okay, what's missing is the room sound in life. The accident of everybody recording, that you all being different blocks of energy, you're knowing when to leave the room or not, for whatever reason was just instinct. But now if someone is writing on a laptop, they're removing the humanity out of it, and they're writing about people, they're writing about things that it just doesn't work. And they're probably in a Starbucks anyway. There you are, right, waiting for Sir Rod. I think that being all in the room together... Yeah made a huge difference. Totally. Because it was a shared experience. It was. Yeah. And and there would be leakage. Uh, absolutely. In absolutely. many different ways. In many different ways. In many different ways. There's one particular time of that that I want us to go to. It's the journey from Olympic to Primrose Hill. Because your take on it has to be clearer than mine, mainly because... We're different goals. It's an interesting point because, of course, the people I discussed that whole experience with weren't there. I mean, it's not really something that we've discussed. No, well, we will. No, I know. Uh, yeah. So the story as I remember it yep. was that we were regularly doing sessions at Olympic, yes. which would start at about 10 at night right. and would finish at 5 or 6 in the morning. Yeah. And... One of these mornings, we all came out of Olympic. What were we recording? What became Between the Buttons, I suppose? It must have been. But it was. we weren't doing tracks then, we were overdubbing. Probably. Yeah. But there's The tracks having of... been cut, the last set of tracks to be cut in LA. Is that right? I, I, I mind, yeah. The tracks started to get muddy when we started to record because life was becoming muddy. Those tracks had a particular clarity to them, so I think we were now bringing the things home. It's, it's perfectly possible, although I did another recording session, of which I think was the overdub session, which I shot in the same way with the vignette, with the blurry vignette at Olympic. And I think that followed the Primrose Hill session. No, we but then we started doing, doing the tracks. We Love right. You, Dandelion or whatever it was, and that stuff. Mm. And what became the beginning of Three Weeks In and Here's Michael Cooper. But we can get to that later. I still, I want the journey of Primrose Hill. You know, you know, a lot of people think we planned the flowers cover with Brian having no leaves. I don't remember that being right. Okay. No, 
But people think it was done. Well, it's like people do that because there's this whole group of people who are absolutely convinced and determined that Brian was a wonderful person Uh and that everything, everybody did everything to him. They don't think that he had any responsibility. They don't understand that he got five pounds a week first more. (laughs) Yeah. So he took, had five pounds more a week. Yeah. No, but I mean, they also don't know that people don't, remember or don't know or don't realise that he was a deeply disturbed person. Yeah. And more recently, I've concluded that he was an undiagnosed bipolar, but we didn't know about No, but here you have a problem. I thought I was bipolar until I stopped taking drugs. <laughs> <laughs> True. Anyway, Brian, it could be said, if you look at it sometimes, because of all the stuff that comes in about him, you can look at a bad copy, you know, like a thing on the internet, of your picture and go, yeah, Brian looks photoshopped because he looks like he wasn't there. Well, in some ways he wasn't. No. That's the, the, but now what I'm asking is how... how did okay, get I got it. It's the dynamic. You, you were taking their picture. I was just going, oh, how long? You would actually... The, the, my memory of it is pretty much this. We used to fall out of the studio and I realised that at that point in time, after all night session, hung over the stoned... That they looked fantastic. There was something to them that looked fantastic. Indeed. And that either we just discussed that or I suggested that we did a session. But the idea of doing a session straight after recording came to light. Right. I, for some reason, thought about making this filter to try and reflect the druggy way society was leaning at that point. And I made this sort of cumbersome handmade... This is the end of 66. It's the end of 66. It's about the end of November. so many things. Yes, things were changing. The end. The public were taking drugs. And swinging London was finishing. Yeah. It was really changing. And um, persuaded everybody, or how that actually happened, I'm not sure, but we persuaded everybody to do it, and we got into a series of cars. There was your car with Eddie driving yeah. and somebody else. And we piled in and we drove across London to Primrose Hill. We had, it was a convoy, wasn't it? It was a convoy, and I, I can't remember. Brian had a one-headlight Rolls. Yes, he had a white one-headlight Rolls, which I yeah. think Tom, what's his face? He was already? I think he... Oh, dear. I'm I so glad so. I forget that. Yeah. yeah. I think he was driving, but he wasn't with us going up the hill. Eddie was the only one okay. who was going yeah. up the hill, so I guess whoever else was driving was had down the bottom of the hill because yeah. we couldn't drive up. Yeah. We had to walk up. Yeah. And the sun was coming up, and everybody seemed to be in great shape about it. But Brian had stopped to get a, a paper. He would. Probably the Times. Or the big day, uh, broadsheet. Or the Daily Worker. No, it was a big broadsheet mm. newspaper. And I, mm. we went up to the top, and we started taking photographs, and everything seemed to be going great. But Brian was clearly either purposefully trying to screw up the session or just simply calling attention my memory is at one point you were always behind me yeah and you were behind me and i turned to you and i said i'm really worried because i knew we didn't have long everybody was cold everybody was tired everybody it was cold and i knew we didn't have very long and i turned around i said to you i think brian's fucking this up and you said to me in my memory is you said to me it doesn't matter what he does. He can only contribute to the image of the band at this time. Don't worry about it. Wow. 
See, I've, apart from I'm hearing your recall, I know now that I have this habit of removing the difficult parts from my life. I'm sure we all do that. I know, so I don't remember that. I remember it because it's important to me because I knew I had 20 minutes if I, if that. Right. Before the it was important people to going to work. Well, not just people going to work, but simply the band imploding and yeah, right. old and tired and wanting to, well, wanting to go home. But about how did the other four react to Brian? Do you know, I think they were very used to it. Sure, see. When Brian was in a good moment, yeah. when he was so important and he was such a contributor, but as the moments became less and less... I think everybody was used to it. Were you in L.A. in the studio sessions at RCA when I had to pull the plug out on him? I was only for a few days in December 65, and I think I don't remember that. Don't remember that? No, I remember actually, I remember the overall vibe being pretty good. Yeah, it was good. At that point. Yeah, but it got bad. It definitely got bad. He would go out to, I mean, we don't know where he went, we didn't care. No, that happened on that 65 tour. He got out of the limo in a traffic jam and disappeared. And you guys had to put out the story that he had flu because he didn't appear for two or three shows. For some reason, I think that was in Chicago, but I, I can't remember. There is a film, which I saw about 10 years ago, made, perhaps I shared this during after, before or after Fazy, but it's one of those countries in Scandinavia, right? See, okay, this film from Sweden, not Norway was a film, as you know, everywhere except France, every country had its own Beatles and Stones until Sergeant Pepper. Because then you need a Rolls Royce, a rock and roll mansion and money. But before that, Tristan yeah. Shout and everything, and all those countries. So this was a group that had been Sweden's Rolling Stones for 40 years. Yeah, They were making a documentary. The lead singer's in hospital dying of cancer. And they're all standing outside the hospital, so and so, so and so, and all this stuff, to have their 40-year reunion. And what makes them able to sell the film and call it Rolling Stoned is that they have about eight minutes of Super 8 without sound of the Rolling Stones playing in Sweden in 1965. And it was a gig I didn't go to. And the most amazing part about it was I got to see how they behaved when I wasn't there. And it wasn't that pleasant. It wasn't unpleasant, but they were strutting their feathers, particularly the lead singer, uh, Brenda, under any other name. <laughs> right? No, it was interesting. He was really fucking flaunting it. But, but whereas at that particular time, he wouldn't have flaunted it that much in front of me. Unfortunately, we weren't living in times, if someone had come back and said, have a look at this, Andrew, then wouldn't have made any fucking difference. But seeing it there, you go, wow, okay. But Brian... Figures, you know, it, it, no, they were really behaving like Manfred Mann. <laughs> or a lead singer in Manfred Mann. And, the, and there were several. Yeah, they were. <laughs> Which confuses everything. Yeah. So in this documentary, there's this Super 8 stuff, and they're on a boat and over on or, or a balcony. Difficult to tell. Yeah. And they were being silly. Yes. But I deemed rude. Okay, rude to the journalists, yeah. taking the piss out, yeah, out of the journalists. The general public and everything. So this is a sort of interesting thing, because do you really think they 
would have behaved differently had you been there? Because do you think so? Yeah, until I was on the way out. Keith puts it beautifully where he says, Andrew and I got on while we liked the same music. Meaning that when we then wanted to start making different records... They went in a different direction. Yes. They were going in a different direction. That basically was it. But anyway, back to Sweden. So the other part was interesting, going back to Brian, because we've got so much about Brian lately and it's not over. See, the conflicting thing for an artist, okay... I spent time with Tom Petty before he passed. Did you? Yeah. And to me, one of the big conflicts was he was a split personality because he couldn't work out whether he was a pop star or a musician. This was one of Brian's problems. From the moment he saw the Beatles at the Royal Albert Hall, he wanted both. That's interesting. Look, look at it. We're in a unique position in that nobody else could be having this conversation. No, nobody else at all. But it's interesting. So let me just quickly go back to Brian and that whole 66... Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Because you were talking about Sweden and it was filmed in 65. Yep. And my memory of the band in 65 was, yes, of course, they could be silly, as you put it. Maybe even a little bolshy, maybe a little cheeky, but they were always, in my memory, even on the road in America, and some of the journalists... My memory is of, of them actually handling a lot of that professionally, very professionally. And you weren't around on every no. gig at all. In fact, no. However, <clears throat> the Sweden thing, I wonder whether it's a language thing, because I see them always on those occasions as that cheekiness, that naughtiness that was part of that mid 60s stone's appeal and i'm not sure right. whether i can yeah, this that uh, could be totally right it was a sort of naughty it wasn't cruel i don't remember it being that cruel all right maybe i'll take the word cruel out you think that they would have behaved differently had you been there they would have been it would have been three minutes less would have been, hmm? three minutes less maybe there's nobody on the outside telling them to exactly pull just from that point of view no absolutely yeah. well no that's in, that's really important in the film okay there's a girl who looked remarkably like Shirley Watts, but wasn't that sort of cropped Maybrit beauty, right? She was an airline stewardess. In the film, filmed so 10, 12 years ago, she's talking about Brian then. And in the language of the day, where if someone says, I was with him, with a certain, the way the words are formed, you know what they meant. Yes. They didn't have to say, yes. Right. She was with Brian, and Brian had given her his phone number in London. Remember, we're back in landline. This is more than the Americans. This is phone calls were expensive. Very expensive. And he had invited her to go to London. But then on the last night that they spent together, the phrasing was, she said, because I was, pause, with him. He suddenly turned on her and said, you wish I was Mick, don't you? (laughs) Oh, dear. Right? Now, you can't make that up. No, 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 that's, that sounds absolutely true. It's terrifyingly sad. Pathetic, there you go, that's better. Terrifyingly sad. But that, with Brian, that was, seeing that thing 10 years ago, I went, wow, man. I mean, I know I've said, you can flower it any way you like. It's best said the way you said it at the beginning. He just was not a nice person. He was capable of being extraordinarily charming. He if had- he wanted something from you. If he wanted something, or if he thought it was appropriate to the environment he was in, he was snobby, a bit snobby in that way. 
Yeah, I know. He, okay, for example, when I spent some time with Polanski and he said he liked him. Jerry Shesberg loved him, you know, and said until something would happen. Mm. And with Shesberg, that he was too friendly with Mick. What, Jerry was yeah. too friendly with Mick? And then Brian turned, turned on. Yeah. Mm. And then with Mamie Polanski, I, I told him the story about when you and I were there in the studio just before Michael Cooper and Brian was bleeding, playing the harp. And because his face was so, for those who haven't taken drugs, and God bless all of you, first you take the drugs, then they take you. Hey, oh, I know, but so long. Uh, and it wasn't bad, because the difference is that if you take drugs out of low self-esteem, you're in trouble from day one. If you take them just to get high, it's later. But anyway, yeah. uh, but Polanski said that I was saying, I was having, I was having trouble saying to him, I was going, Brian, you know, you remember in, in the Olympic studio, underneath the control room, there was a little booth yes. through which you went to get to the control room. Yeah. Brian, for the sake of separation, was playing the harp in that room and his mouth, his face was so numb from whatever he'd be taking that he didn't know he was bleeding. Mm. And everybody else outside, so the rest of the Stones, were laughing. Could they see that he was bleeding? Yeah, but, no, but okay, what do you, wh however you're arriving at it, the, the key is how Polanski finished the sentence for me and I said, and he was just, um, you know, and he said, because it was funny. I suppose when you come from where he came from, a little blood from the mouth is playing harmonica is nothing. Nothing. River Park. Absolutely nothing. You come out of that situation either with the blood half full or half empty. I, I remember that Brian had to be propped up in that little booth. He spent a lot of time in that little booth. <laughs> <laughs> he had to be propped up. Yeah. yeah. Because he would be semi-collapsed. But he did manage most of the time to play something. Yeah. Played no. the recorder. What was that? Ruby Tuesday. Yeah. No, he was, he, we know he was brilliant at going off and finding an instrument that nobody else could play. Yeah. The only other time that we ever had to hire an outside musician, apart from dear Jack, who was with us for the whole journey, um, was Nick DeCaro, an arranger who did, did the arrangements from chairs, gypsies, tramps and thieves and lots of other things, who played the accordion on Backstreet Girl, because right. the part was precise. Right. It wasn't, hey, man, yeah, yeah. you know. It wasn't like, loose enough. For no, it, it had to be a, the part that an orchestrator understood. Yes, absolutely. And then, okay, Jack Nietzsche. And you know how Jack was when we worked together. An angel. Yeah, he seemed lovely. Yeah. And his wife would Great. bring in food. It was lovely. Yeah. yeah, to the studio. Yeah. Yeah, no, the whole thing was lovely. And yeah. he was extremely... He was n not just very charming, but he was very he, he was very caring about the band and everything. Very, yeah. So I was going back to ask you to um, because you, as again, it's, you see, to have this opportunity because you saw it on that sixty-five tour. Mm. And us in the studio. Well, see, because now it, it's a pleasure to talk about totally different stones than the Primrose Hill. Mm. By the way, did we invent Primrose Hill? Were we the first people there? No, I'm afraid we weren't. Oh, dear. I wish we had been. It's all right. As long as we came second. I think we were probably the first band. Yeah. But it had been used by several photographers beforehand. Anyone we know? David Bailey had used it 
a couple of times. I don't think that's... Who shot Marion Faithful on Hermitus Hill? Bailey. Oh, he did. So was that yeah. before? Would have been, of course. I think that was definitely Must before. I think yeah. that was 60, 64. Must have. Very early 65. Yeah. But I think we were the first band to yeah. use it. And then the whole thing of being that reasonably wasted. The work showed. The, the work showed in their faces. Yeah, which I think... They didn't look like Duran Duran. No. And again, I don't know whether this is absolutely true, but... I always imagined, because they'd been photographed by Bailey before I came yeah. to the scene. And I always thought that you had suggested that I photograph them or asked me to photograph them or told me to photograph them. Because what Bailey bought was an inevitable gloss of glamour. Yeah. He, he, he couldn't mm. help it. It was just because he was that far further down the line. His yeah. skills... And his experience just gave his subjects uh, a, a glamorous feel. Indeed. And my work style was, relatively speaking, primitive and it was quite harsh and it was quite gritty. Right. And I think that you felt that was more reflective of how you thought the stones should be at that point. Yeah, I think that some of it was that after Bailey, a lot of photographers started seizing upon that way that he took things. He could not avoid Vogue. No. And that became the way that acts or people started to be photographed, and that was something I had to avoid. Yes, absolutely, and I wanted to avoid that as well. How did we meet? How did you and I meet? Yes. I, was, I started photographing Marianne okay. in 64. You knew Marianne before you I, met me? Yes, I met Marianne socially, as they say. <laughs> I thought I met her socially. <laughs> no, you met her socially. I met her socially, and I immediately wanted a photograph her. So I asked her, can I photograph her? Did she got anything to do with me then? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, she had just done the first or second. She'd done Thank Your Lucky Stars, which okay. was done in Birmingham. Right. And my dear friend, Jeremy Clyde, yeah. who was part of Chad and Jeremy, yes. were on the same show. Okay. And for some reason, Marianne was up there by herself. No. Apparently, there was nobody. No Tony C. No. And you were certainly not no, nowhere to be seen. No. And there was nobody. And so Jeremy, yeah. out of the goodness of his own heart, suggested that she came back with him and Chad. And I was waiting at Jeremy's flat because uh -huh. we'd arranged that we'd all go out to dinner. And then he walked in with the beautiful Marianne. Oh, really? So that's how you met? That's how I met Marianne. And yesterday's gone? And yesterday had gone. <laughs> so you asked me earlier, yes. how did I meet you? Yes, I did. And I was going to respond by saying that as I photographed Marianne. John Dunbar. There was John Dunbar, but that, but there was, Tony Calder was sort of oh, looking right, after right. Marianne on a day-to-day -day basis. For you. Yeah. And I started photographing her in the recording studio. Okay. As not, not, but when Tony was recording her. Not me. Um... As tears go by, it was goodbye. I gone. think, yeah, no, that had gone, and there, Mike Leander was running. Always, always. He was behind all the four hits that she had. Yeah, and and then I photographed her in the pub for the cover, yeah, which is great. Picture. Come my way, yeah, and and you couldn't get away with that. Talk about Honey, girl, don't come my way. I always thought that was an odd title. Yeah, it didn't make sense. No, but girl, don't come did. If you think of it like that, 
But what's come my way? Oh, I see. Yeah, got it. I'm sorry, I'm slow. Thank you, mother. Like, <laughs> so where did we meet? Did I come oh. to Mason Chard? Probably without further ado, I fixed up for you to take pictures of the stones. Well, you, I met you at Ivor Court. Oh, well, you auditioned. I auditioned. And I met you and the band Ivor Court. Oh, you met the band there? Yeah, at the end of 64. Okay. And there was uh, Tony King was around. Of course. And, uh, and Reg. And Reg. Was around. Yeah. And I think that was the, the time. The yin and yang of the operation. The yin and yang of the operation, yes. That's you know, I did, which I didn't know, that Tony King... You know, I never asked anybody where the part came from. Well, should I? Why, why would you? Yeah. It, in those I, days, why would you? Indeed. Actually, it was below my station. But not only that, that it just didn't, right. there wasn't, didn't occur to me. It didn't no. occur to me, be, no. anybody, because there wasn't that much around that no. you needed to worry about it. You know, no. if the plane had come in from Jamaica, had landed the day before, there'd be some very nice grass around. Yeah. And that was that. But hash was more interesting. Hash was more interesting. Yeah. Because it only affected you physically, it didn't affect the mind. I, yes, maybe that's true, but the grass was very gentle in those days. It wasn't like... I only ever got paranoid until I went to America. Well, I'm not sure whether that had anything to do with the drugs, did it? It's it's just, <laughs> you have a point. <laughs> no, you have a point, because actually on that point, and we will go back to meeting Marianne, or meeting me, like, is I had to... I was analysing something the other day, and going... Well, yeah, you don't understand. I was saying, you don't understand. The Rolling Stones playing still to this day in Europe is a totally different thing to playing in America. I mean, I read, I don't know if you read it, and if you haven't, I suggest you do. There's a book out on Robert Frank, and there is a chapter on the movie Cocksucker Blues and the, the dealing with the Stones office and the, the filming of it and what he, you know, actually just witnessed. That it was all on like on another planet. Right. It was something not even Roger Vadim could think of. It's a miracle that they've now become the Rat Pack with guitars. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, because that, all the things of Cocksucker Blues and all the Sam Cutler and, and Ronnie Schneider and, and Nat Cohen and Stuart Levy movie kind of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's extraordinary that they, you know, survived as intact. As, as wonderfully they, intact. As wonderfully yeah. intact. And wonderfully creative and oh i'm gonna go that far oh no you're this the if we're talking like the ability to repeat yes okay but there's still a creative energy involved not really oh i think so oh it's, it's it, all right from the point professional of professional creative energy yeah okay it's a professionalism I mean, there oh no, totally yeah. living in a world where even the smiles are rehearsed to make that look as if it's French Fish. is a that hell of a good. gift. Is a hell of a gift. Huge. No, I'm not knocking. Oh, no, what no. I, no, but I'm not. But anyway, the stones is like, you know, the cumulative. What's that word? Cumulative. Thank cumulative. Say, say. Cumulative. Got it. Energy that they have brought upon themselves in America is totally different. Still, because of what the experiences they had and put on everybody in America is totally different than Europe. And tours in Europe just seem, from the distance that I'm at, seem to have been brighter, more... More up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I think there's been a positivity about yeah. the last couple of tours that's been absolutely phenomenal. OK, all right, let me set this up for you. I've reached a time in my trade that if I do ever go back into the studio, like, for example, the last time I was in the studio in Argentina, and 
the main trick for me now with people who know my tricks and know their tricks is how can I keep them off guard long enough to get something good out of them that they weren't actually prepared to give me because they've already decided who they are. Yeah, no, that's interesting way of putting in. I hear that. I get that completely. So you're saying, how do I work now if I work? Because I don't no, really... No, in that. the middle period. In the middle, you're middle dealing period. with people who I think you've dealt with a lot of people who have already got a sense of who they are. Yes. When you're well, dealing with the Rolling Stones, that's different. Mm, or Marianne. It, that, you it's know. interesting because I've always, looking back, which is inevitable at this point, uh, yeah. I've realised that actually I've always preferred working with people earlier in the career when the image hasn't really been formed. Otherwise, it's just a job. Recording. How do you change it to not being a job? Yes, and well, also you're recording something that's already established and there basically you become a celebrity photographer. You're photographing somebody who's already exists. You, you don't have much to say. They are just being what they've become. I prefer working with somebody when they're not quite sure of where they're going. Where they're grateful Almost that they're being taken seriously. No, I don't think they really knew. I don't think they were that conscious that we were at that point. I think they were looking for help to formulate an image, to capture an image that they weren't sure of. You were saying that you hope that you can bring out of a band something that they weren't planning to give you because they were so... That's, That's recent. That's recent. They've already decided who they are. That could be pretty boring. Or you don't need to want to repeat somebody else's tricks. Yeah. And so the, the game is, how do I keep them off guard long enough to get something original out of them? Yes. But in the 60s, certainly in that mid-60s period, 64, 5, 6, and part of 7, was that nobody was that professional about what worked and what didn't work. We were all trying to find different ways of making it work. Even with the Stones, the point I was going to try and make was that even though the Stones... I first started working with you and the Stones before Satisfaction, and Satisfaction was the big turning point, wasn't it? For me in England, it was You Better Move On. Okay. It was the sweater on the Arthur Haynes show. Wow, serious, man. The sweater on the Arthur Haynes show? Yeah. That Mick wore. Remember, okay. I don't remember that. It's 64, right? Okay. It's an EP. It's the lead song. Um, God, I could almost get moved here. But anyway, it, okay, an EP, as you know, cost 11 and 3. A single cost five, five shillings and seven pence. It still went into the top 10. It went to number nine, which means people are paying double the money and it's up there. <coughs> Everything else that's in there, Jailhouse Rock by Elvis did it. Five by five would do it which owes everything to Jailhouse Rock because that had five songs on it. Right. Oh, boy. Okay, you watch it. Look, The Arthur Haynes Show, right? It's up there, right? You know, this was like all of my dreams come together. you got Belmondo. you got the French New Wave, the sweater. Yeah. The American Ballad, which somehow we managed to cut a decent track of, which is tough, right? Something where there's got to be space and it's got to breathe, is a different yeah, feat to pull off. So the seamless thing about the Rolling Stones for me is that unlike other groups who would frown upon giving you a hit single because, man, it's not what we really do, the Rolling Stones were completely seamless in, in the singles, the albums, the image, 
the photos, and until we lost control of it, the publicity. Yeah. So you were there. We, we were building layers. We weren't like an Otto Preminger film where the poster was the great thing about it. Yeah, no, I hear you. I get you that's completely. A no, I know. Thank you. I, I, I know. I appreciate it. I think that's really what I was getting at by saying, pointing out that they hadn't had satisfaction and they, they were still being molded and moved and it was, it was still happening that there was still work to be done. You see, but yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's my job. Like, that when you're doing, looking at them, you're noticing who's twitching first, who's moving into the right position first. Yes, because in those days, what the, one of the things we were all trying to reject in our own way was that glittery teeth, frilly shirt. We were all trying to instinctively, not necessarily even consciously, but instinctively, we were trying to get away from that. So we, I was trying to do as much of my work in available light as I could. I was trying to capture a mood and an atmosphere and a feeling about the people I photographed. And I wasn't, it wasn't that planned, but somehow I was managing to get pictures that people like yourself wanted to use because they projected that feeling that yeah. you were looking for. Well, one of, the, see, one of the main feelings out of it was that the same way as I was trying to make in the records, mix sound like an instrument. You know, it wasn't lead vocal with accompaniment. Your pictures accomplished that for us too. It yes. matched, it matched in, from the placement and the... Yes, and I don't even know how conscious we were about that, except there was a, definitely a message that, that, yes, mix the lead singer, but don't treat him exactly. like those that sing. And so he could be at the back, but yeah. he'd always make his presence yes. felt. Totally. And that it was a band of individuals. It wasn't a singer and a... No, 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 no. And I think that I must have understood that. You yeah. must have communicated that. We just... That was the way... Because it was very easy in some ways, because there was nothing really special about them until they, they were the Rolling Stones, whether it was in front of your camera or on stage or in the studio. You mean as individuals? Yeah. No. And the funny thing was that right at that early, early point, 65, Brian was the one with the most defined image. He yeah. was, in a way, the most charismatic in, a, he in terms of his appearance yeah. because of the hair and his particular taste in clothes at that moment yes. in time. I mean, apart from Charlie, who was just always yeah. stylish yes, in a sort of jazz hip. No, but Brian stood out for the wrong reasons in many ways. OK, there was the fashion, there was the hair, but there was also the need. Yes, that's probably true, but I don't know whether one... Things changed quite quickly. I mean, maybe not as quick as they do now, but things changed quite quickly. <clears throat> no, but when you look at the schedules we were on... Okay, three albums a year in England and two EPs and four singles, more albums in America. A single had to be come up with, it had to be every 12 or 14 weeks. And the photographs, the images got used up. Yes, they did. You were, you were using some of my pictures from the first session at the end of that right. year. Yeah. But, but we've done a lot of other pictures. Yep. Yeah in between as well. Yeah. And I'm sure you'd done lots of sessions with other people because you were doing sessions in America. Guy went to Jerry Shetz. Yeah, I, uh, it's something we've never discussed, but because the images is just so forever. Just Jimi Hendrix. Yes, that, that's, that, that was really interesting because that was happening at the beginning of 
at the end of 66 and the beginning of 67. Yeah. So it absolutely was, was at the same time as I was working so intensively with you guys. Was the was the and that's through Chaz. And that was through Chaz. Yeah. And and Chaz Chandler. Chaz Chandler was the bass player in the Animals. And who for some reason had decided that he was going to go into management. I, I started photographing bands for Chaz Slade, but of course that was Later. Or uh, I don't know. No, I'm just trying to think when I first photographed that was later, but Jimmy was around still. Um it was at the end of 66 when Chaz called me and mm. said, I've got this extraordinary bloke. Right. And he's called Jimi Hendrix and we're going to put him on at uh, a little club in Soho called the Bag of Nails. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and I went there and there was this in, just insane performance by this trio. And to be honest... And you're in the audience. I'm in the audience and the no, place is packed. Why? Yeah. With musicians... I mean, with lots of musicians. Pete Townsend, I think, was yeah. there. Eric Clapton was there. Yeah. I always thought Jimmy Page was there, but he says he wasn't. He said to me he wasn't there. Jeff Beck was there. Okay. And there were a lot of people, and the business was there. The business. Was the there. business was there. And it was to introduce Jimmy Hendrix to this. Yeah. And I, to be honest with you, the music actually went over my head. I, I, I'm so pleased it happened to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. I found it, I, I, I just, it wasn't, melodic but he was mesmerized and he was so charismatic and he looked so extraordinary there was something about Jimi hendrix at this point in time where he he didn't care about what anybody thought he was just him that was mesmerizing the music he made went over my head i didn't really get that until the records when that, that right. they started to make sense and Chaz brought him over to me afterwards. He was doing the rounds of the room, introducing him to journalists and other musicians, and da da. And and I, Chaz produced him too. Chaz was producing him. Yeah. What I'm interested in here, now that we're talking about it, okay. it has just occurred to me is okay. How did Chaz handle that? Because you know this is a completely different collage or whatever than what I'm having to handle. So I'm slightly curious about how Chaz. Yeah, I'm not dealing with people who with whom you're saying whatever they do is great. No, funnily enough, I don't remember Chaz being remotely hands-on in terms of image with any of his artists. I don't remember because Jimmy seemed to be complete. You know, I mean, Brian was supposed to have taken Jimmy to, introduce Jimmy to Granny Takes a Trip and the Antique Market, and Jimmy just seemed to take everything that was around yeah, him. yeah. And it looked as though it was made for him. He was incredible. Incredible. A muse for London. Absolutely. Yeah. And that moment in, in London's time. Right. And Chaz said to me, introduced me, and, and I shook Jimmy's hand, and Jimmy called me sir in that extraordinary American way, which seemed wow. completely... We've been here, we've just been there two days, two days ago, we were with a very famous Vancouver disc jockey who we were talking to because he had spoken to Elvis Presley, Ricky Nelson and all these things. And he was talking about a news conference here in Vancouver and Elvis would look to Colonel Parker in the back of the room as to how he would answer a question at a press conference. Not whether he was under the colonel's control or however it was run, but this gentleman, Red Robinson, turned around and he said, you know, Half of the problem for Elvis was that he was brought up in a culture where 
you respected your elders. So he called his manager, sir. Yeah. Louis Armstrong gave Joe Glazer 50% all of his life and called him Mr. Glazer all of his life. Yes. It's it's a different world. Yeah. So Jimi Hendrix has mused everything we've got going. Yeah. But he's still the guy that he was born as, uterus and location. That's true. But at that particular moment, I mean, he didn't know me from Adam. I guess he would have referred to everybody as sir or ma'am. I mean, that would have been the way he was brought up. That was just instinctive and automatic rock and roll hadn't invaded that side of what he was right. who he no, was exactly, exactly. yeah and, and which is wonderful which is extraordinary yeah. Thanks so much for listening to today's Hot Chat with Garrett Mankiewicz. Please go to my show notes for our YouTube audiovisual companion playlist. You can get more episodes of Sounds and Vision by going to soundsandvision.net or by subscribing to this Hot Chat in your favorite podcast feed. Now that I've seen everybody on CNN rattling off the same stuff, I don't feel like such a nylon sales selling you nylons on the corner of Piccadilly Circus in Podchatland. You can reach me at Instagram or Twitter by finding at Lou Golden and Facebook by going to facebook.com slash Andrew The show was produced by Craig Snyder. The audio design was by Michael Donaldson and also the extra tweets. Sounds and Vision is a production and an entity of Because Entertainment. We will see you for another week. Ciao.